Welcome to the Exchange Podcast by EWL. As advisors to some of the most successful families in the country, Craig Emanuel, Tim Wyburn, and I, Ryan Lure, draw upon some of the best minds in the country. We believe that by exchanging ideas, we can deliver better advice and better outcomes for the families we work for. Now, we're inviting you on this journey. In this podcast, we interview some of the country's best investment managers, business advisors, bankers, and founders to share their valuable insights. And our hope is that with better information comes better decisions, helping you to achieve more financially. Hi, I'm Craig Emanuel, a managing partner of Emanuel Wybon & Lua. This morning, I had an incredible opportunity to sit down in our Sydney office boardroom, shake hands, and spend some time face-to-face with Mr. Mario Giannini, the CEO and founder of Hamilton Lane. Hamilton Lane is a world-leading global investment manager, providing market solutions to a broad range of investors from the world's largest family offices, sovereign funds, and investment banks. Hamilton Lane currently manages more than $1.3 trillion in assets, serving daily more than 2,000 clients. Mario Giannini, is the founder, CEO, and co-executive chairman of Hamilton Lane. Mario has been Hamilton Lane's CEO for more than 22 years and is also responsible for the firm's overall strategic direction, management structure, and investment committee process. Mario received a BA from California State University, Northridge, also an LLM from the University of Virginia, and a JD from Boston College. I'm sure you'll enjoy the discussion with Mr. Mario Giannini. A very good morning and welcome to the latest podcast, The Exchange by EWNL. This morning it is an absolute pleasure to welcome Mario Giannini, founder and CEO of Hamilton Lane, in person to our Sydney boardroom. I've been looking forward to this discussion this morning, Mario, as we have a huge amount of respect for both you personally and the business you found at Hamilton Lane. Today we'll discuss Mario's background, what drives him personally, while discussing some current threats and opportunities we all face as investors in the current world, while drilling down into some of the unique strategies employed by Hamilton Lane globally. I remember meeting you personally a few years ago, Murray, at our office in Brisbane, and you talked through some quite sobering numbers at the time, and it, w- it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. I think you spoke about, in the last two decades, a sheer decline in the number of public listed companies globally. They've almost halved in two decades. That really surprised me. Second, as well, some numbers, and... The private market space or the backyard that you play in is less than one-tenth of the size of the total public market valuation. Added to that, there is now more than four times the amount of unicorns, or in other words, words, $1 billion valuation companies, four times of the number of those held in private market funds compared to public markets. So now there is a huge opportunity for investors to access these companies, which are no longer viable, maybe on public markets. Let's firstly touch on your personal background, Mario, and you are renowned as probably one of the most respected global pioneers in your industry. A little about yourself personally and why you were attracted originally to work in private equity. Thank you for having me here. This will be be interesting. And it's obviously a topic I love to talk about, the private markets. Me personally, it's it's probably not much to tell. I, I will tell you this, though. I came to the private markets completely by accident. I was a lawyer by background, which I, I tend not to admit being a lawyer that you're not 
anymore is kind of like being a reformed smoker. You always kind of are, are one of those things. But I, I was a bankruptcy workout lawyer. I had taken over a company, turned it around, and I was on garden leave. And someone I knew had started Hamilton Lane literally the month or two months earlier. And I went there to find another company to buy because I figured I didn't really know what private equity was. I sort of knew they had something to do with, with private companies, but that's about it. And I intended to go there, find a company and leave. And I just never left. I, I was a little bit like the bad penny that, that you can't get rid of. But more interestingly, I just found it to be a place where you had a growing market. You had people at that point, this is what the early 90s, who didn't really know what these markets were all about and were trying to figure out a way to navigate through them. And companies like ours helped them do that. So it, it was really a, a, a very odd circumstance of opportunity, right place, right time, and, and a great industry backdrop as the entire industry grew over the next now 30 years. You were probably back then about the sort of the age of mid-30s, would you? Yeah, 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 was, young, was, yeah, yeah. yeah, 30s, 40 years old. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things really that's always interesting to me in terms of people map their lives out. If you had talked to me when I was 30, there is no way in the world I would have either been in private markets, a CEO, anything the way I eventually spent a good part of my career. And, and I always tell people, I think you just got to be open to opportunities and things that happen and move with them and see what, what's the worst that happens. It doesn't work and you go do something else. Looking back at the, the infamous global financial crisis, the GFC, we all remember it very well, etched into our minds. I'd probably say since that period, there's been a huge emergence of private credit, or in other words, non-bank lending now washing around the world. As a result, the capital stack has changed for most companies, whether that's private or public companies. And you'd probably say as well, do you think there's been a bit of a blur between private equity, private credit, and private debt? Do you sort of see those th- private credit and all of those in one, one melting pot? Talk us through your view there. The great financial crisis was, this will sound terrible because it was a horrible period, but it was a real watershed moment for private markets because what happened during that period was investors said, wait a minute, I hate public equity because I didn't know it could go down 40, 50%. Um, I hate real estate because it, it got killed. Um, I, I hate hedge funds because they never return anything. But this private equity and private credit stuff has done relatively okay. And it, sh- it shifted everyone's attitude in, in a very perverse way in the sense of you, you never want anything like that to happen, but it made private markets, private equity, private credit, private infrastructure, legitimate parts of everyone's portfolio. Everyone looked at it and said, I need some of that because everything else is going to hell. And yes, what you said is exactly right. Private credit really mushroomed because banks left the market. Regulators didn't want banks making loans. And all of a sudden, you had private credit going, we're the only game in town. And in portfolios, I think two things have happened. One is everyone put private credit in with private equity. There was sort of this private alternatives allocation, and it became one big bucket. I think what you're seeing now is more of a movement towards saying private credit should be its own bucket in with public, I mean, yeah, public debt that it shouldn't be lumped in with private equity because the return risk, uh, all the profiles are different. And there's a huge movement. I, I would say the, the biggest thing over the last five years has been the, the movement into private credit, both by general partners, the people investing, and by limited partners who are investing their capital with the general partners. 
it, 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 it almost worries you a little because there's such unanimity that private credit is the place to be. But yeah, it's, it's really an outgrowth from the GFC. I think it's a potential future growth from here. Still an enormous scope for growth, you think, in that, that industry itself? My guess is there's still enormous growth because of the bank situation. So take the United States, for example, where probably it's the largest of the private credit markets. I still personally believe, and, and, and this isn't something unique that I believe, but the, the regulators do not want regional banks. They just don't want them. They're, they're, they're large enough to be a problem, but not large enough that you want to regulate all of them. There's just too many. Concentration risk or what reason? That in- well, I, I think they're just worried that you know these banks are big, but they're not big enough. You'd need a regulatory environment that's two, three times as big as what you have today. And they're just not going to dedicate the, the resources, frankly. And so I suspect that what you'll see is regional banks continue to leave the market over time, which, again, is a huge opportunity for private credit. It's one of these things where as people become more comfortable with private credit as a way to finance transactions, finance whatever you want to do, it, it, the market share will grow. Will it have the kind of incredible growth it's had over the last five, six, 10 years, you know, that, that'll probably slow down a little bit. But I, I think there's still an enormous, enormous amount of, of available space for private credit to grow. Completely agree. Let's touch on, if we can, portfolio construction for Hamilton Lane. Interested to hear your thoughts on how important is geographic diversity? We spoke earlier about the unfortunate contentions in the Middle East and Gaza. And up to recently, that part of the world is probably the most important technology venture-raising part of the planet, if you like. Added to that, do you think globalisation has peaked? And is this sort of leading to a hindrance in capital flows, particularly for Hamilton Lane and your business? Yeah, a lot of threads, I think, in that in that question. I think it is one of the more important questions that investors face today. I'll start with portfolio construction as kind of a macro thing. A curious part about private markets people is, you know, in the public markets, what what they tell me, what I think is accepted wisdom is that 90-something percent of return is due to asset allocation. If you listen to private markets people, you'd think it's zero, that it's all about the next great deal, the next great, you know, uh, transaction you found. Our view is that that's not true, that 50-60% of return is portfolio construction, some of the things you talked about. Should you be in Europe over the US? Should you be, you know, venture versus growth? Should you be buyout versus those things really matter. So as we look at the world today, the whole globalization theme is an important one. I don't think we are deglobalizing. I don't think that you know we're about to go backwards from where we've gone over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But I do believe that the the globalization we are all accustomed to will change. So, for example, I saw a statistic last week that in the U.S., the largest trading partner for the U.S. used to be China. That's where we got the U.S. got most of its imports. It's now Mexico. And I think that is what we will begin to see. We will begin to see the world more, more closely aligned with, I'll call them, regional blocks, where you have the U.S., Europe block, and Australia will be in that, South Korea, Japan, um, and the China-Russia block. The trading between those two blocks will be challenging. So, for example, if you're a U.S. investor, investing in China is very difficult. Like you, you simply don't know the rules, and you don't know what they'll be now, tomorrow. More because of recent geopolitical tensions? Yeah, less, I think, I think in, so? in the U.S. right now, and China believes the same thing, the biggest economic foe is each other, each other's biggest economic foe. 
and they will define the industries and areas in which they will not permit their whatever they have influence over to help the other block economically. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon in the US. It doesn't. I mean, Trump started it, but Biden is equally, the Democrats are equally as, as anti-China as the Republicans. So as investors, you have to know that. When I look at our client base, our US investors and most of our European investors have no interest in investing in China. None. Our Australian, South Korean, Japanese investors are hesitant, not really sure they'll, they will if it's an incredible opportunity, whereas our Middle Eastern investors can't get enough China exposure. So I, I look at that and I say, it's not that we're deglobalizing, we're just shifting trading structures into, I'll call them allies and less than allies. And if you're unaffiliated, then you have some, I think, advantages in terms of investing, in terms of where you want to invest. But it's a, it's a very challenging world. And I was in China uh, a couple months ago, and I didn't realize this, but, but uh, I was talking to Chinese investors who told me that in India now, you cannot buy an Indian company if you're a Chinese investor. What? So, you know, you see that all that, that was certainly not the case 10, 15 years ago. They wanted as much China investment as they could get. So that to me is part of a reality as we all invest, whether in the public or the private sphere, is what is going on in terms of the geopolitical environment. And it's not going to get better. I mean, honestly, it's just not going to get better. We're going to have, you know, you have a war in Ukraine, you have a war in the Middle East. North Korea, God only knows what they're, I mean, it, it just feels like you're going to have continued tension around that. And so as investors, I think you just have to realize that that's a reality of, of where you're going to invest. So the onshoring thematic is probably only just gathering momentum, you think? Yes, uh, that is a very real phenomenon. Now it, it has its limits. You can't, so again, take the United States. We don't have the manufacturing base to, in two years, take all of the, the production that's going on in China and move it into the US. But what you are seeing is some of it is moving to Mexico, some of it is moving to the US, some of it is moving to the Philippines. Yes, there will be, and in certain industries, you saw the United States and semiconductor essentially saying to the world, we are going to have our own semiconductor industry, period. We're not going to rely on Taiwan. We're not going to rely on China. And I suspect other blocks will do that. Europe will try to do that and probably because they're Europe mess it up, but they will try. I mean, it just, uh, yeah, you will see more of that. The second question still dwelling on portfolio construction, if we can. Clearly, obviously, the reach of Hamilton Lane globally is enormous. So if you can touch sort of briefly on your governance structure, more importantly than your investment committee process. And with that, do you more, I guess, target long-term secular thematics to, to invest within, or, or is it instead case-by-case -case basis? It, it's, a, it's a dual process, I would, or, or it, parallel process, I would call it. The, the advantage-disadvantage of the private markets is you can't change your mind, in essence. You are making a longer-term strategic bet on where you think things will be, where you think they will move. And so I would say that from our investment perspective, and I think this is probably true of a large part of the, the private markets universe, people have what I'll call a core portfolio. Mm -hmm. And it may depend on their risk return parameters. So if you're an endowment or a foundation, for example, you may lean toward, toward a much riskier portfolio profile with more venture, more growth, because that's your, your kind of risk return profile generally for your assets whereas other investors may have far less of that. So for us, what we try to do is build a portfolio, depending on the client we're working for, if it's our own, you know, what the goal of that portfolio is, that has a core 
around what we think are the the best areas over a five, seven year period. And then maybe 20, 25% of that portfolio is a little more tactical in the sense of we may think Europe over the next three years is more interesting than the US or vice versa. We may think growth is more interesting than value. And then we will get very specific around tailoring the portfolio, whether with co-investments, meaning deals alongside general partners that are in specific companies that are in those kinds of profiles we're looking for, you know, or, or however we're, we're creating those, those portfolios. And our investment process is you know, we, have, we have teams who are either they're doing partnership investing, direct investing in companies, secondaries, buying interests of people that are selling their, their interests credit, infrastructure, and those teams look at each of the, the verticals, if you will, that are in those associated areas. Some deals, I guess, are they pretty very slow burn? Can you act very quickly and nimbly? One of the biggest benefits in private mar- markets, arguably, is the governance benefits. But if you want to act quickly on a transaction, how quick can you push out through your investment committee process? Well, I mean, we can, we can do it in a day. Okay, um, that quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you sure. One of the things again, for better or worse, is is our structure is such that if someone sends out usually an email that says, I need a decision in 24 hours, mm-hmm. but that's that is rare. Okay. I mean I, I can't I can't stress how rare that is. There are transactions that need a week or two, and there are some, like you said, that are months and months in okay. the making. So I, I would say mm-hmm. where you have a very quick decision structure is normally where it's 24 hours, 12 hours, is where You've been working on a deal for a while and the price changes at the last minute for some reason, you know, competitive pressure, whatever it is, then you might have to make a decision very quickly. But I, I'd be hard pressed to think of a deal that came in and we had 24 or 48 hours to do the deal from beginning when we first heard about it to making a decision. And, and I would say, frankly, if you saw that very often, you'd either you'd say either there's something wrong with your investment process or the market's gone a little haywire where where you're making because again it's not like you can change your make the, do the deal on Monday and on Friday like you can in the public markets go eh I change your mind you're stuck like yeah. you own it you pull the trigger yeah you better you better be proud and willing to own it for some time looking back in history to a degree remember studying corporate finance one on one at university and one of the very first books promoted by a lecturer back then was the classic book titled Barbarians at the Gate, the book by the KKR of their famous Nabisco takeover. And back then there was a classic war-renowned chainsaw. He was otherwise known as Al Chainsaw Dunlap. He was renowned as walking into a company, slice and dice, slice costs, slice employees, dial up some debt. You obviously you get then the hockey stick on earnings and, and sell out. So how have you seen industry transform over that time, otherwise known as a, the bad old days? Yep. P's come a lot way, long way since then, so... Talk through the main yeah, transformation. It, it is it is the bad old days, but if you, the unfortunate part about the industry, I think, is that it has never outgrown those days on the buyout side. The venture capital world is still seen as these kind of plucky, daring, almost mythical <clears throat> figures who create these companies out of whole cloth, and you know they're wonderful people who are are looking out for mankind, which. Like the Batmans or the Supermans yeah, or that guy. Yeah. <laughs> then you see Elon Musk and you go, well, that may not be it. But I, I, I do believe the industry simply never outgrown its reputation for slash and burn. And that's what it was at the beginning. I mean, you could, you could put 80% leverage, 90% leverage on a company. And so sure, all you really had to do was cut costs enough to create 
better earnings and then sell it. I mean, that, that was the name of the game. That's just not the industry anymore. So if you look at last year, the amount of debt on a company was less than half. So in other words, going from 80%, so it's like a house. You used to, you used to be able to buy a house with, with 80%, only 20% equity. You used to be able to buy a company with 20% equity. Now you have to put 50, 60% equity on a company. Is that a regulatory constraint or is it no, more of a disunitary? No, it's just how the industry sort of grown. I would say it's more the lenders. So yeah. whether public, whether banks or private credit have said, I know where we've had problems and it's when you're over levered. So we're not going to let you over lever. And what that means is when you think about what you have to do in order to create return with that kind of, of leverage, if you will, you have to do it by growth. And I, and I believe that is where the industry has gone. I, we do, we have value creation models and look at where did the return come from in transactions for, for every investment we make. And what you find is that finance, financial engineering, leverage is usually something like 10, 12, 13% of the total return. Most of the return, over half of it, comes from just fundamental EBITDA growth. And that's what the industry is today. It's just a, it's a different industry from, from Dunlap and, and all of his, his kind of, of, of style. But I don't think the perception of the industry has, a, has grown with it. I still think, and I hear it all the time, people always say to me, one of the biggest arguments about, about private equity against it is, well, it's just levered public equity or all your return is from leverage. And the reality is that that's not true, but it makes a great soundbite, won't we? I mean, it just sounds great. That's a very good point. Let's touch on how difficult it's been to raise funds the last couple of years, both in the public and private market space. So there's obviously been, since the year 2021, that was the record year, if you like, for, for capital raising in both public and private markets. And since a period of time, you have seen, correct me if I'm wrong, but a decline of about 65% of fresh capital raised in both private equity and vent in the venture world. Talk us through, I guess, the, the difficulties you've seen in Hamilton Lane in, in, in that environment where there's been it's been tough to raise capital. We've been saying for a couple of years now that this is not a short-term problem. This is a this is a a cyclical three, five, six year issue that the industry will face. Mm-hmm. And and it's facing it for a couple of reasons. The first is limited partners don't have as much capital as they did. And for a very good reason, because their private markets portfolio hasn't gone down. It's gone up. And so as a percentage of their assets, it has not created that kind of room to put out as much capital as, as everyone wants them to. But I think that's a smaller part of the problem. I'll come back to that in a minute. But the bigger part of the problem is the the general partners, the people raising capital have proliferated. They're, they're like mushrooms gone nuts in the, in the forest. They just, and what really happened is it's not so much that they raised ever bigger funds. They did, but the industry can deal with that. They raised so many different kinds of funds. Okay. If you were a manager, you had your big buyout fund, you had your smaller buyout fund, you had your smaller, smaller than that. Buy- I mean, you just had so many funds that I don't think the industry could have grown as fast as the demand from the general partner community for capital. And that's where we are today. And the the issue in this industry is in most industries, when you have that kind of supply-demand imbalance, the number of general partners shrinks. You know, you, instead of 100 of them, you have 80 of them and they all go live happily ever after. 
they're like vampires. You cannot kill them. You cannot get rid of them. There's no magic state that drives them out of business. They continue because they have long-term vehicles. And so the, the process of the industry right-sizing, if you will, takes time. And we are going to go through, a, I think, a very, very difficult period of many general partners not reaching their targets. And I don't know what they do in that environment. Do they lay people off? Do they merge? I, I don't know. But uh, this isn't something that is going to magically go away because the market goes up 10% or, or something like that happens. And in today's market, what is making it worse is the lack of exits coming back to investors. And so if you're an investor, you're sitting there going, well, wait a minute, I, I do want to invest more. I will invest more. But come on, people, help me out. Give me some capital back. Like, you can't leave me here. And, you know, general partners are tone deaf. Well, my portfolio is doing great. Don't worry. And we say, well, we're not worried. We just like to see some money back. So I, I, I think we're in that, that phase of the market. And I, I don't think it's going to go away anytime, anytime soon. Touching at you, right, so um, capital raising has slowed, but more importantly, deal activity has probably slowed even more so, so on both equity and the venture side. So do you see this argument as probably an overvaluation reason, not too many deals are there which are worth throwing money at, yeah. or secondly, I guess more of, a, more of a limited choice reason, if you like? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's an overvaluation issue. I, I think valuations are generally, I think in, in venture, they're probably still a little too high, and so... I suspect part of the reason the venture activity is slow is that no one, and they're too high because no one really knows when the company will need money and if they're going to be able to raise money at that point when they when they go get it. In the buyout world, I think valuations are generally okay, but the problem in that world is twofold right now, maybe threefold. One is if you're a buyer, you're not sure what the economic outlook is. Like you've got people chirping in your ear, in your right ear, that the economies are going to go into a recession at the end of this year. And you got someone else chirping in your left ear that, oh, hell no, things are great. So you're not sure what to pay for a company and you want a discount. You're going to tell the seller, I don't think these earnings are going to stay. The seller is going, what are you nuts? Like, look how good I'm, I'm really doing well here. Go away. And you have this lack of price discovery right now. And if you look at what is selling and, and what is being purchased, it is the highest quality assets at very high prices. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm a buyer, and I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but if I'm a buyer, I believe that under any circumstance, this company will thrive. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a seller, I'm comfortable with the price and so I'm willing to sell. If, if it's a company that's in a cyclical industry, if it's a company that has any kind of hiccups, it's just very challenging for buyers and sellers to agree on a price. And, and my own view is, is somebody will blink. I don't know if it's the buyer or the seller. My guess is it's the buyer. They will blink this year. You will begin to see more deal activity this year, especially if the public markets stay kind of okay. So you think probably the trough might have been seen in deal flow? Recently? Probably. Okay. Unless, unless, you know, all hell breaks loose economically, in, in which case everyone will freeze up. But I don't, I don't believe that's what's going to happen. But in that absence, I think we have seen the worst of the deal environment. Touch briefly, if we can, on the secondaries market, I guess, for the sake of this is whereby ideally some successful founders are looking at selling out of some of their 
in, in some cases successful, maybe not so successful shares to, to, sec- to the secondary market. That's been arguably pretty pretty dry as well recently, and that does also provide quite a bit of liquidity for, for private equity investors like yourself for future foreign funding. So I think the secondary markets also may be troughed as well on a transaction basis. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think in the secondary market, you have two very distinct deal paths. One is what you described, where where a general partner may have a company that they want to sell some interest to get some money back to the limited partners, but they want to keep the company or, or the majority of the company. I think those deals are still a little challenged because of the price dynamics we talked about. The other part of the market where you're buying secondary interest from other limited partners. So in other words, if I have, if I have, if I've made a commitment to Blackstone and Apollo's last fund, but I want to get out of it because I want to raise capital to invest in other funds and I buy those interests, that market I think continues to be pretty good and, and will be an, an interesting market over the course of the next probably a couple of years, just because of that dynamic I talked about where many limited partners want to create liquidity in order to keep investing in the markets. And they'll do it by selling. So for example, we just had a seller come in and what they said is we've got a portfolio, I'll make these numbers up, of a billion dollars. And we want to create 100 to 200 million. We need 200 million of capital to invest in the markets. We will sell a strip of these commitments we have made into the secondary market. Mm-hmm. And so it's, a, it's an interesting way, again, for us, if we buy it, to get at some discount some interesting assets and for the seller to create liquidity in their portfolio to go do other things that they want to do. Let's try to look forward a little, if we can, from today. A couple of very important topics for us to touch on. But firstly, starting with uh, a very broad-based question, your current view on the global economy. I think you already mentioned that you do think maybe the worst, worst is behind us. Um, yeah. Great if we can see that. Do you see, I guess, sort of in, in that lying stress of cracks appearing, particularly corners of the world, or whether that be debt, credit, whatever the case is? Uh, I guess in your case, what are the risks out there at the moment? The worst yeah. risk we see. So I'll start with saying how wrong I was last year. Because <laughs> okay. It's only good for people to know. So, yeah. I feel like I got two out of three right, but the, the big one was wrong. So, so well, I thought inflation was coming down and I thought it would come down dramatically. And, and it did almost everywhere. And I thought rates were going to peak sometime mid-year and they did. But I thought that economies would roll over, particularly the US and Europe. I thought they would... I don't know if they were going to go into a recession, but I thought they would they would really slow down. Uh, the growth in those economies would, would markedly slow down, and they didn't. Because of stress from the Russia-Ukraine? I thought the economies would go down in Europe because of the stress of, of a war in Europe, but also because I thought high interest rates would would significantly impact consumption. I just figured that's what happens, and, and that's what would happen this time. What I had not appreciated in the U.S., is I mean I, I've said this on occasion. Yeah, I'm an American, and and I am taught to spend. Like that's my goal in life. I will spend, and I will spend until I have nothing left to spend. And I just hadn't appreciated how the amount of fiscal stimulus through both the pandemic and through some of the Inflation Reduction Act things that the U.S. did put tons of money into the system. Yeah, and. That money is still in the system. 
And higher interest rates simply didn't affect most of the American consumers, particularly on the mortgage side, because they were locked in. And so they got higher rates with higher earnings on their savings, and their costs were fixed on the other side. And so as I look at the environment today, I am not in the camp that thinks that inflation is going to come roaring back. And, and I don't think the Fed will raise rates, but I also don't think they're going to cut rates anytime soon. I think they lost so much credibility. Inflation was going up, and they did nothing. So I still believe that the U.S. economy and the European economy are going to slow into as the year progresses, but I don't think we're going to have a severe recession. So my guess is the, the, the stock markets around the world have figured that out, and that's why they've already rallied into this, into this environment. The rally makes me a little nervous, given how it's in the US, for example, it's focused on seven companies, essentially. That, that's a little, a little worrisome. The, the valuation on NVIDIA is incredible. Well, That's approaching $3 trillion. So yeah. I, I always laugh about people say, I'd rather be in the public markets because they're less risky. So two things. In the Russell 2000, which is what private equity is always compared to, 40% of those companies lose money. 40%. If I came to you and said, I've got a portfolio of private equity companies and don't worry, 40% of them are losing money. You'd say, get out of here. But then I got an even better pitch for you. Out of your private equity portfolios, all of the return over the last three years is driven by seven companies. And the average PE on those seven companies is 50. You in? God, no, you're out. You're saying, get out of here. I, I don't want anything to do with that portfolio. Yet, people say to us, well, no, private is much riskier than public. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's true. But with that said... The public markets have done fine and, and my base case. But, but the other thing I think we all have to worry about here is we've got a lot of elections around the world. Yeah. And one in particular in the U.S. could dramatically change. You know, if, if Trump wins in the United States, I think you're looking at a – and we can agree or disagree on, on him as a human being and his policies, which I will parenthetically say are horrendous and he has no business running. But – that said, I think the biggest danger is that the uncertainty around what what kind of a decision process are we going to go through for four years if he wins, and I, I think that will really impact the markets. It'll impact economies. And in in Europe, you've got a very big election in the UK, and I suspect from everything I read that it will flip from a conservative regime to a much much more liberal uh, regime and what will that do to the business environment. So I think there are a lot of elections around the world. India has a huge one. And so uh, I suspect that while the markets have done well, and I'm not at all suggesting they won't do well, we have some elections that will have a real impact on how many economies are going to be governed that we all have to be watching pretty carefully. But right now, I don't like credit. I don't see a lot of stresses. I don't see, I just don't see any of the and you never do, I guess, before a big shift, but I don't see any warning signs where you go, wow, we got to pay more attention to that. Other perhaps China and, and their debt market. But I believe, and I've believed for quite a while, that China has enough liquidity, enough resources to take care of it if, if they choose to. Correct. Yeah, you're right. I think I remember reading recently, Mario, that it's um, more than 80% of the world's population are going to vote by the end of the year, which is an incredible year. Yeah. Um, and obviously, yeah, whether, whether we will see a classic scenario of Perhaps say selling on the rumor, buying on the fact. I remember very well the re I shouldn't say recent, but when Trump got over the line with Hillary Clinton, there was crying in the streets of New York. But I'm um, shortly after that, the U.S. Mar market went on a tear. Yeah, 
Trump would argue it's because of him, but I think it was a cl- classic <laughs> analogy if you're buying bo- on the fact. So, but I think you're right. I think that's why, from from our perspective, as we look at what this year will look like, it it will be much more volatile than we expect because as each of these elections takes hold, as everyone you know makes predictions about it, you're going to have very bumpy things. And, and you're right, we won't really know till 25, but people will assume that they know, and we're we're going to have some. I just suspect some ups and downs that we don't expect. I'm on touch on a particularly very important topic and the emergence of artificial intelligence. And my view would probably say could be the most dramatic technology advancement we might see in our lifetimes. Remember back in the late 90s, a lot of technology companies pre the 2000 tech boom and tech wreck, back then the, the, the holy grail, if you like, was voice recognition. Then it became facial recognition, and more recently, then the emergence of data and cloud. So, and the emergence of AI will literally inhale data globally. Your view, if if I could, on AI, if we can touch on that, the yeah. large language model, and how it could transform your industry, and how you can access that sort of opportunity too in private markets. This one's a tricky one in the sense that I agree with you that that AI will revolutionise almost everything that we do. Where I'm not as convinced yet. So the venture industry had, should have really collapsed almost given, given the dynamics around it two years ago and has largely held itself together through the promise of AI with the idea that that is where you are going to make money is in private, private venture looking at AI. I'm a little skeptical on that one. I think instead, you talked about NVIDIA, uh, Microsoft. I believe that the initial opportunity around pure AI, just if you want to be an AI, is going to be more on some of these giant technology companies. Mm -hmm. I believe what the private markets will do and are doing is they are going to revolutionize underlying industries through the application of AI. So as we look at companies we're investing in, as we talk to general partners who are investing in companies, what they're doing is figuring out I'm making this up, but just to take an industry, how will we transform the industry that delivers medicine, that delivers XYZ through the application of AI? That is where I think on the private side, you will have enormous winners and losers more than I'm going to find the next chat GPT and invest in that. I'm very leery of that. I I just don't think that that's going to happen. I think where the private markets will thrive is again, as I said, the application of AI and the ancillary things that AI needs in order to succeed. So those kinds of companies will do exceptionally well on the private side. I, but but you know, I, I think right now, if I was betting on the AI technology as a technology, it's hard to bet against Microsoft or Google or Amazon. It really is. The, the, the resources required to do this right now are enormous. But again, the the second, third layer applications will be a huge part of where private markets are going. I remember reading a research uh, report from Goldman Sachs last week, and remember there's currently 140,000 drive-through McDonald's around the world, and they're expecting within 12 months that you drive through Mac because no longer talk to a human within 12 months, talk to a bot. They uh, benefits here are they they're never late to work. They turn up. They can interpret different languages. Won't make mistakes, and obviously from McDonald's point of view, great margin expansion. So 
interesting your thoughts. Will AO be a net winner or, or a net loss for, for the broader population globally, i.e. big job displacement? Do you think it'll be uh, great for companies, but for the broader employment industry? This is a broader sociological question than it is an investment question, although it is an investment question in many ways. But the trend of the haves and have-nots, AI will exacerbate that trend. And if governments don't figure out how to rapidly retrain, reallocate resources, and they won't. I mean, you know they won't. They, they, they've not shown any ability to do it to date. I believe for quite some time that the biggest threat to our entire investing outlook, our entire investment world as we know it, is this issue of haves versus have-nots. So in many parts of the world, the UK, the US, when you look at the survey of younger people and their view towards capitalism, is very negative. And I think it's largely driven by this have versus have not. And AI will not make that better. Right. Yeah. If, take that example, if it's Microsoft and McDonald's together figuring out these bots, they're going to benefit. They're the ones that make the money. And the thousands of workers that are laid off, I mean, where do they go? So this is something that I, I, I don't believe AI net net Sure, 20 years will all benefit, but my Lord, that, that's not the, the short-term outlook. It is surprising really how far behind the eight ball U.S. Congress is compared to, say, European regulators. Obviously, Europe's introduced their, their UAI policy, but U.S. Congress and, and still US talk about but, so. but here's the flip side of that. So I have heard a number of investors say, the problem with what Europe is doing is that they're going to isolate themselves from AI and its benefits. Now, Europe may say that's great because we're not going to have the social upheaval. But if the US and China, as the two largest economies that are trying to apply AI, don't go along with what Europe is doing, Europe runs the real risk of finding itself uh, way behind on the application of AI and its its companies and its industries themselves then behind. So it's a it's a very very challenging set of of issues that that they face. Touching again on I guess how difficult it was to raise capital recently, if we can just re- circling back on that topic. Capital has been very scarce, but arguably as well the amount of I guess positive deals have even been more scarce. So talk us through. It'll be probably seeing without question. Bit of pressure from LPs and investors to deploy capital. How do you manage pressure from your investor base to say, "Look, Mario, get out there, pull a pull a trigger, and put the money to work"? Is that difficult in this environment? This is an age-old question, I think, for for all investors. Which is, and people have different points of view on this. What do you expect from a Hamilton Lane, a Blackstone, a, a TPG? Do you expect that? Their job is to deploy capital consistently, no matter what the markets are doing, or do you expect that they will only deploy in times when the opportunities are really good and they will not deploy at other times? And I think the answer is very different among investors. And so firms like us, for every, every firm has very competing pressures in their investor base as to what is their mandate. And it's a, it's a tough question because you, our own view is that we are not paid to invest no matter what, that we are paid to make relative judgments on what makes sense. And at times, so for example, in, in late 21, 
we didn't do any growth investments. Okay. And not because not we're smart, but not because we're we're geniuses, but because the prices were this didn't make sense to us. So it wasn't a real macro call. And so in this environment, it's the same thing. I think if if you have, we're fortunate, we have a broad enough platform, we have a broad enough set of deal flow in all the different areas where you don't have to you don't have to do a deal. And there's enough interesting deals to meet what we think is a prudent deployment schedule. But no, I, I think that some investors really are pounding the door of their of their managers going, I why am I paying you? You need to put the money out faster. But I'll also tell you that those same investors, if those deals go bad, will say, What the hell were you thinking? Like, <laughs> what were you doing that? What would you do that deal for? So, but you know what? My answer to a lot of that is that's what we're that's what we're paid for. I mean, that that, that is what we are paid to be second guessed and to to know what we're doing in terms of of making the right choices in markets that are like this that are that are more challenging. To instead be very patient, custodian capital. At the end of the day, you know, it, people want return, and I get that at times they get frustrated, and you know, they want you to be putting the money out faster. But you also have to be true to who you are philosophically and culturally internally. And I think doing deals because somebody said, "Well, we have the money, we got to put it out." We, that it would just feel weird. Touching on the potential growth for your sector, if we can, I think I recently uh, watched an interview by from the, uh, the CEO of the world's largest sovereign fund, the Norwegian Sovereign Fund. And for listeners out there, it's uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Fund is a behemoth fund globally, manages around US three trillion dollars in assets. And uh, I was surprised to hear that the CEO Nikolai Tangen, when he's interviewed, said that they can't currently invest in private markets such as yourself. They've been pushing for some time to get formal Norwegian government approval, still waiting for that to happen. And obviously, when that time comes, you certainly see the floodgates open, if you like. But talk us through, really, the scope scope for more growth in your private market industry as a whole globally. I think, you know, you've seen some of the McKinsey studies. Bain, I think, has done some studies that, that says this market over the next 10 years will grow, I think they said 14%, 50, something like that, something like that. And I think that's probably notionally correct, largely because when we say private markets, so I think private equity will continue to grow, but it is the it is very large already in the sense of it has grown. And I suspect that will be the smallest growing, if you will, of the private markets fields. But even with that growth, it'll be 10 to 15% driven by the Norwegians. If they come into the market, there are all sorts of new investors that don't have any allocation. And I think people will continue to allocate more and more into private equity for the reasons you cited at the beginning. Public markets just don't have that many companies. And returns have been better. But the other private markets are going to grow also. Infrastructure, credit we talked about. So when you think about illiquids as a part of portfolios, I've said this and I believe it. In, In 10 years, when you and I have this conversation in 10 years, most investors, whether high net worth or institutional will have half or more of their portfolios in illiquids. And not just private equity, so credit, all the things I've talked about. Because first, the return is better, and I don't see structurally that that's going to change over the next five or 10 years. And so that that will, will drive a lot of it. And second, I think people will recognize that liquidity is just an overrated thing in portfolios. I mean, people want liquidity to make mistakes. That's where they want it. I want liquidity so I can sell when I shouldn't. And I want liquidity to buy when I don't. So I, I, 
I suspect that over time we'll all understand that and go, I don't need that much liquidity. That's just my view of, of where the industry is going. Will there be ups and downs? Probably. But the trend, there's just nothing structurally that will change that trend. Until And look, I don't think this is a great thing on the, on the equity side because I do think you need a strong, thriving public market. You just do for, for all sorts of capital formation reasons. But regulations have made being a public company way too challenging. And that makes private much more attractive. And as you said at the beginning, private companies can at any size get capital, mm. which is always why you wanted to be public because you couldn't get capital otherwise. Mm. You can now in any setting. So unless the regulators change what it means to be public, which I don't think they will, or they change what it means to be private, which they might, that, that would be the risk for private equity where they say, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to govern you the way we govern public companies, and that will change some of those dynamics then. But also probably one of the most important um, topics that we speak to clients about the importance of private markets really is alignment of interests. Public companies, shareholders don't run the company. They're run by a board, CEO, chairman, they paid a big salary and walk away. In your case, there is clear alignment and clear skin of the game. You are, in essence, the shareholders helping to run the company. I've always thought that, Private equity outperforms public equity. Same with credit, any of the illiquids, not because of leverage, not because, you know, general partners are geniuses. Private equity people aren't any smarter than anyone else. It's the alignment, as you yeah. talked about. Um, everyone is on the same page, and that just doesn't exist in the public markets, unfortunately. Bit of a shame you went in town last week, Mario. Uh, we had a private dinner by Al Gore. Um, ah. <laughs> You probably not out spend some time in your in your in your past life, but I hear you're also coincidentally uh, quite a vocal um, non-believer in ESG. So that's the right way to put it. Um, talk us through this because um, I'm probably in your camp as well. Where the reasons there are, there's no clear measurement. Is it a political football? Talk us through your thinking on ESG. If you have time yeah. for that, look what <laughs> <laughs> I, I am. I am known as a skeptic on ESG. What I want to make clear is. I'm not a climate denier, so anyone from the U.S. that isn't ESG is is, is thought to be a climate denier and, and a rabid Republican, which I'm neither. My issue with ESG as as an investment construct is that it's just happy talk. Is that what what I think is going on is people? It sounds great to say I am ESG conscious, but as you pointed out, what does it mean? What are you measuring? How are you measuring it? And what are you doing about the measurements? And my objection here is, and we talk to a lot of, of limited partners, investors, they all mean something different. They, every one of them, they don't have any agreement on what they're, they're solving for. And they don't have any agreed upon measuring capability. Um, and so for me to say, oh, I'm really focused on E, what are you focused on? What? What does that mean? And I have been in too many situations where you say, okay, you're measuring something. Let's say you've even gotten that far. What are you doing about it? Like, what are you doing about it? Are you really selling that investment on the private side because it doesn't meet your ESG criteria, whatever they are? Hell no. To me, it just feels like we are still in that stage where we're, where we're all talking about it and 
at least outside the U.S., we all have to say we believe in it and, and it's part of our investment um, guideline. Whereas in the U.S., obviously, it's a split where some people, if you even say you're ESG conscious, you're out. You're, you're thrown out of the uh, the meeting. I was in a meeting with one of our clients who was the pension fund of a very red state. And I, w- I was walking to the meeting to give, I forget, some presentation. And the CIO came out and said to me, I, I know, Mario, you will say anything anywhere. You will not mention the word ESG in any context, <laughs> yeah. even if you think you're trying to help us. Don't even bring it up. And I thought, what a crazy world we live in where you cannot even bring it up without fear of derailing the entire meeting and the entire discussion on whatever it was. So that's, I mean, that's obviously the extreme, although there are a lot of states in the U.S. where that's the case. But I I think the industry, particularly on the limited partner investor side, needs to get its act together here and decide what are you trying to achieve? And I think it needs to probably decide on a smaller, more measurable set of characteristics it's looking to solve for, decide on what those measurements are, and then what are you doing about it? And I just don't, I see it all over the place. And I understand Australia is probably one of the more, I'll call it advanced in terms of very, very focused on it. But is it all that different even here? There'd be a lot of pop string pulling. So look, it will change. I, I will say from an investor perspective, and when, when we look at investments, the ESG issue, this is why it is part of every investment decision because you have to make a decision since you're owning a company for three, five, seven years, what will the world look like? So we did an investment where one of its its main outputs essentially was were plastic straws. Very profitable company, did really well. We didn't do the investment, not because you know ESG says you can't do anything with plastic straws, but because we thought when we go to sell this company in five years, what will that industry even look like? And so how do you make a decision? Because social pressures, regulatory, so ESG comes into it but not in the context of saying, well, no, I can, only, I can only have this many credits for plastic in my portfolio. It comes into it because you've got to make a decision of what the hell is going to happen to this company in five years? And we just couldn't get comfortable that it was going to be thriving. On to uh, a classic term otherwise called vintages. Now, from a firm level, we are very active and very passionate investors in everything from venture to startup and also private equity. Back to your point, we have very recently made a decision of firm will probably allocate up to 30 to 40 percent of our client exposure to the right private market managers so a big shift for us you think this year 2024 if we look back in the next few years could turn turn into be maybe one of the best vintages to to invest in private markets if we have seen the trough do you think it could be one of the best years to invest yeah i i think it will probably be one of the it'll be on the better side given the dynamics the way things are shaking out right now. It will certainly be better than, you know, I mean, 21 will probably be a challenged vintage, 22 maybe, um, 23, I can't really tell you, but sure. I think 24, when when you look at these dynamics, particularly if the public markets stall out around here, I think the big risk for private markets in this environment is that the public markets just keep screaming ahead 15, 20%. Because then I think valuations just get way out of whack. I don't, see that happening. And so in that environment, I think the buyers and sellers really do reach some kind of, you have a better price discovery. So our view is that 24 is likely to be a, in, in the good category of vintage years. Now, in, in wrapping up, I think when we first sat in this room about an hour or so ago, Mario, we jokingly said that there are two 
iconic American superstars in Australia currently. There's Mario Giannini and there's Taylor Swift. Amazing, both are at the same time. But tell us about yourself in Final Parting Thoughts. Something about yourself, a characteristic or a personal trait of yours, which your colleagues might, might necessarily know about you. I'll give you one because I was, coincidentally, and by the way, my guess is that Taylor Swift's audience is going to be a little bigger than mine while I'm here in Australia, but it's just because she has a better marketing machine than, than we do. Here's something. So I think that people would say that at, at Hamilton Lane and even outside that, that I'm a generally more outgoing, chatty, talkative person, when in reality, I am probably one of the most introverted human beings. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one of the things I had to learn when I first became CEO, so this was 20 something years ago, when I feel any stress or have any issues, my preference is to go sit in a corner and just work it through in my head. And what I learned is I can't do that. Like you have to get out there. You have to talk to people for a number of reasons. One, it makes, <laughs> helps you make better decisions. But second, if you're, if you're, shying away, if you're kind of burrowed off, everyone goes, there's a problem. Something's yeah. wrong. And and the other thing is I found, like, I, I really enjoy stuff like this. I enjoy having conversations with people and learning. That's how I learn what's going on in the markets, what's what's happening in the world. But no, I, I would, I've, I've always been surprised sometimes when, when people go, well, it, it's easy for you because you're outgoing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So do you have your own little sort of man cave with your pool table at home or how do you unwind if you need to rest, uh, pause and rest I, out? I, I grab my guitar and just sit in a corner and strum. That's yeah, right. yeah That's pretty right. much. We'll call it a wrap. Thanks, Mara. So finally, a very huge thank you for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I'm sure our listeners will agree that it's been an incredible benefit and thank you very much for your amazing insight. So big thank you thank you for for asking me to do this i i've enjoyed it and, and very good questions it's an interesting time it surely is thanks again 